Go. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm glad to see the faithful here among us. Y'all like the U.S. Postal Service used to be. Neither sleet, nor rain, nor ice. You are here for Bible study. If those of you joining us online, we're glad you're here as well. Stay in safe wherever you are. Today we're going to be pressing on in Leviticus, the most exciting book of the Bible. Um, we're going to finish with chapter 11, then go on to chapter 16 through 18. Um, a quick note that Bub is out sick this week, and so Kristen Burke is here as her substitute, and Kristen's going to be monitoring our chat online. So as always, if you have questions or comments, please feel free to make those on Facebook, YouTube, wherever you're watching, and Kristen will make sure to pass those on to me as we go. I guess a quick reminder, if you don't get our emails, then sign up for those emails. You can visit stmichael.org rbs. Send Bub an email and she'll add you to our list. And you can listen to all our old podcasts there as always. Let's open with a prayer and we'll get rolling. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for this day. And even through the rain and sleet and cold weather, we know you are present with us. Fill us with your spirit. Help to open our hearts and minds that you can fill us up and guide us as we grow closer and closer to you day by day. Be with all those we care for, families, friends, neighbors who need your healing touch today. May they know your presence be uplifted by your grace that we may all continue to witness to your love in the world. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, team. Last week, we had a good question about prayer, that perennial question um, that we have about prayer. And so we're going to tackle that just real quickly because part of what we're doing in Leviticus, as a reminder, Leviticus is really about how we worship God properly. So this is the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai receiving word from God through Moses about really how to worship. Leviticus is focused on worship. And so last week, Rebecca asked that she, or said she appreciated that I made the comment that God's not a cosmic vending machine, that God can make good things out of bad situations. But she also wonders what I can share about the way in which God connects to us through prayer, whether what to do if someone says, you know, well, so-and-so was healed because God chose to heal her or and whatnot. We've done this many different ways, and so I won't rehash a lot of what we talked about, um, but I will say that prayer is something we are called to do. Jesus says, we pray for anything. So whatever you want, you pray for it. And so that's what I'm going to tell you. You pray whatever you need to pray for. You want to ask God for a thing? Ask. You want to be angry at God about something? You be angry. You want to give thanks? Do it. God can handle whatever we can throw at him. If you have never read through the entire Psalter, then I commend that as maybe a fun practice you can take on this year, maybe for Lent, maybe over the summer. Just read the Psalms. What I think you may be surprised to read is that the Psalms go from God is wonderful and beautiful and butterflies and rainbows to killing babies and all kinds of stuff. I mean, it it's swings everywhere. And so the Psalms are such a great example for us to have faith that God can handle whatever we have. So I'm going to start with that. However, 
I want us to stop short of somehow misunderstanding that prayer is meant to convince God to do something. I think that oftentimes we begin to ask and implore and all of those things through prayer, and we just accidentally and totally innocently believe that we're kind of trying to convince God to do a good thing. A loved one gets sick or we get sick or there's a bad accident or someone goes off the rails or you name it. We start to pray and we can easily slip into God may respond in a good way because I am praying in a certain way. There's a, that's a slippery slope because God is not fickle. We'll start there. And we don't have some kind of potential to say a magic spell properly to get the result that we're really looking for. Essentially, what I am setting forth is, you know, I hate to be legalistic because I tell you all the time that law isn't really the way, but consistent theology I do think is important. And so you've likely heard me saying here before that I think free will is absolutely critical that if we cannot have the freedom to choose God or to choose not God, everything breaks down. If God is compelling us to make a particular choice, then there are huge ripple problems with that kind of theology. Same kind of thing with prayer as a means of convincing God to act. In that one little finite moment that might not seem so problematic, but if that then is true, then there are problems, bigger problems. And the easiest bigger problem is, look at any point in time in human history when horrible things have happened. Why not God stepping in and stopping those things? The problem with evil, which has a special word called theodicy, so all my nerds out there, you can Google theodicy. It's a, it's a good word to add to your... I'm going to add two words today to your vocabulary. Theodicy, and then we're going to talk about pseudepigrapha in just a minute, but that's another good one. Um, theodicy is the problem of evil. Evil's in the world. We know it is. It exists. So then what is evil? If God is choosing to do and not do, and act or not act, and all that sort of stuff, then it's kind of difficult to say that evil isn't somehow coming from God like the good comes from God. That's a problem. And so for us, we've learned that God is good, God is love. And so essentially, God's putting out the good through us. But that's where we kind of meet. We are partners with God in the world. Jesus tells us over and over again that it is our faithfulness and our relationship to God that helps to bring about the good in the world. And so the inverse is actually true. When we choose to not be in relationship with God, that's when we allow the evil into the world. This can literally have volumes and volumes of books written about it because it is so complex. And so I'm going to kind of stop there because otherwise I'm just going to fall down the pit of this. But prayer is not essentially convincing God to do or not do a thing. And it is through our relationship to God that good either comes into the world or not. God is good all the time. And it's us called to be part of that good work and our choice to be part of that or not that really creates the dynamism and the complexity of the world.
There you go. So thanks, Rebecca, good question. Um, I have a feeling we'll have more questions about that because anytime I talk about prayer, it just cascades for days. So if you've got them, ask. And that's online, or if you're listening to this later on this week, feel free to email me. We'll cover it. We're going to begin where I did not finish last week, which is chapter 11. So open up your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 11. Chapter 11 begins a conversation about clean and unclean. And it is directly related to what is safe and unsafe about worship. So remember, last week we discussed Aaron's two sons, or two of Aaron's sons, I should say, who died, were burned up. And there was not quite a satisfying response to their, his sons being killed. And so today we're going to cover that, but not just quite yet. There's sort of a little interim period, and chapter 11 is part of that. Essentially, as I said, Leviticus is about how we worship God rightly. When Aaron's sons were burned up, something should tell us in the arc of this story that they did something wrong. S something was done wrong in the worship of God, and their death was the result. That's a little dramatic, but I'm just telling you that's the story. And so now we're trying to figure out then what? So if they did a bad thing, what is the bad thing they did? And how can we not do that bad thing? Because everyone looking around probably would like to not be burned up as they approach the temple for worship. So let's look at chapter 11. We'll start at the very beginning and do a few verses together. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, From among all the land animals, these are the creatures that you may eat. Any animal that has divided hooves and is cleft-footed and chews the cud, such you may eat. But among those that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you shall not eat the following. The camel, for even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hooves. It is unclean for you. The rock badger, for even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hooves. It is unclean for you. The hare, for even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hooves. It is unclean for you. The pig, for even though it has divided hooves and is cleft-footed, it does not chew the cud. It is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and their carcasses you shall not touch. They are unclean for you. All right, so as I said, kind of a little aside, some people killed, not going to deal with that just yet. We're going to deal with that a little later. Now we pivot to food and what animals you can and cannot eat. As I told you, Leviticus, man, super engaging, right? You just want to keep reading this for hours and hours. So I don't know about you, but when I read this a couple weeks ago in preparation for last week, I thought, I don't even know what a rock badger looks like. What the heck is a rock badger? So this is weird, but it establishes an eating practice that we know of as kosher. So essentially, this is setting up kosher eating practices. Now, if you've ever learned anything about kosher laws, you know there are just certain animals that are totally off limits, right? There are no pork hot dogs or bacon or anything at the at temple, okay? So, and I know that for a lot of our St. Michael kids who go to temple for day school, they're really bummed because they can't send hot dogs or they gotta go Hebrew national, right? Beef all the way. Um, so we set up this kosher eating laws. Lots of animals just cannot be eaten ever. Then there is a way you have to prepare the food, which we're really not going to cover because that's a little too much. All I will say is you've got to separate meat from dairy. And if you look at a genuine kosher kitchen, 
what you will see is essentially side-by-side -side whole kitchens. Two ovens, two sinks, two stovetops, two refrigerators, two sets of cabinets with pots and pans and plates and everything because they must, must be separated. Why? We do not separate all that stuff. We are apparently here living today. So what then is the point? It's pretty easy that it could be one of two things. Either A, at some point along the way, people realized there was some danger in certain kinds of food without proper preservation. And so if you simply avoided that, or you avoided putting those things together, the likelihood of things like botulism and other things were much lower. So you were likely not to die from the food you ate. Okay, very sensible. The other idea developing here is that the Jews are supposed to be different. Leviticus, in a macro sense, although all about worship, what is behind or just under the surface of this idea of how to worship properly is really have to be different than all the other people around you. We know that if we can somehow differentiate ourselves from other people, it is a whole lot easier to create unity in our group. Whenever a group defines themselves over and against other people, they build a lot of energy. When a group attempts to be very diverse and inclusive, one of the problems with that is that identity begins to be so diffuse and vague that you can't quite hold it tight. Now, I would say the latter is still the best. And we know Jesus says, like, everybody's in, right? Everybody's at the table, everybody in the pool, everyone can be saved, all of the above. And so that's the way we live. But at this point in time, as they are leaving Egypt and they're going into Canaan, the promised land, to differentiate themselves very clearly from other people is very helpful to create unity within their tribes. And so eating practices, just like circumcision and other things, are ways to differentiate themselves from the other groups that are around them at the time. What I, okay, I'm gonna stop there. Let's pivot, yes, Steve. Yeah, so Steve's comment is essentially was kind of my first idea, which is over time, certain animals may have just either carried more parasites or more bacteria or harder to prepare properly. And of course, like we know some of this today, right? You can't, you have to be careful if you eat medium temp pork, even today. You certainly cannot eat undercooked chicken, um, whereas you can eat raw other things. And so I, like I grew up in Lebanese side of my family, we ate raw lamb and beef. That's kibbe. I mean, it was just, I can remember my grandmother slicing up cubes of lamb and you just like pop one before it was cooked. That was just sort of normal because there are certain things, you know, a beef carpaccio, that's raw. And so there are certain animals, flesh, that eating raw is kind of okay. Now it cannot be, it cannot have sit on the counter for a day 
right? I mean, there are certain things like that that you've got to be careful of, but nobody's eating chicken carpaccio, right? I mean, we don't do that because we know that's just not okay. It was going to make us sick. And so I think your point is well made that some of these religious laws around food can absolutely be anchored to the past when people figured out that certain kinds of animals were just more dangerous than others. Just don't eat that animal. Because honestly, if you never ate pork again, are you somehow not living? Well, you're not living as well. I'm just going to say that. But you are certainly living. And so if that's a dangerous food, don't eat it. Why not? It's a very, very small loss for a significant gain, which is not dying. So I think that it could absolutely be anchored in that. And of course, it's probably some of both. The differentiating factor between the, is the Jews or the Israelites and other people, super important. But did they differentiate themselves in a way that actually made medical or clinical sense around food safety? Sure, why not? That, I mean, they're smart enough, why not? I will say that food restrictions are pretty common in many global religions. There are food restrictions in Christianity. I mean, Lent is a great example. We're a week away from Lent beginning, by the way, circle it next week. And it's very common in Lent. You don't eat meat at all. I grew up, you don't eat meat. At all during Lent, you can eat fish on Fridays, right? That's why Catholic churches in you know, most of our history, they'd have a big fish fry on a Friday because fish was okay, but no meat otherwise. Why? It's not as if they didn't know how to prepare meat, but within religious traditions, Islam is the same way, lots of limitations, Hinduism, Buddhism, lots of limitations, and every religious group limits for particular reasons. In Christianity, the discipline of limiting is about the reminder of God's presence. So one of the things that I say all the time about Lent, whether you take on something or you give something up, any discipline you do in Lent is not about the discipline itself. God does not care if you drink caffeine or eat chocolate in Lent at all. What it's meant to be, though, is something that reminds you every day, multiple times a day, of God. So if you are a meat eater and you give up meat at Lent, every time you go to eat, you think to yourself, oh, can't eat meat. Why can't I eat meat? Well, because I am in relationship with God and that relationship is important to me. And that reminder helps ground you every single day, multiple times a day in God's presence. Otherwise, we can often go an entire day and not actually be directly reminded of God. I think plenty of people do that. Some people like me happen to have reminders all the time every day, but not everyone does that. And so it's really good for us in a season to have that regular daily reminder. If you look outside of Christianity, other religions have certain reasons. I do think the Jews, for the Jews, it was differentiation. That was the primary motive, was we are not like them. And we're gonna see that over and over again in Leviticus in today's lesson for sure. If you look outside, I think Islam probably was a bit of differentiation. When you go to the East and you look at Hinduism, Buddhism, and other traditions like that, it's often about a connection to the creation. So it's less about, I think, food danger, probably less about differentiation, more about simply a higher level of respect for all animals. 
Um, so if you look at Hinduism and Buddhism, it's super common to be vegetarian, or you might say like a pescatarian where they eat fish. So there's mostly because there is a higher level of respect for other animals like us. We'll eat plants, yes, but killing an animal just to eat its flesh when I don't need to, when I can just eat plants, reminds me that I am part of this. I am not above the animals. We are all in this together, and that's a much more Eastern kind of religious idea. Although Western religions have certainly begun to absorb a lot of that, but in the West, mostly religious people in the West, when they are vegetarian or vegan, it's environmental, not kind of creationist. It's a bit more like carbon footprint style stuff than it is about respect for all animals. Certainly there are vegetarians that say respect for all animals, of course. Um, but the majority of the motivation is not the same as it is in Eastern cultures. Okay. I think it's, well, let me see. Mm -mm -mm. I'm going to do one more little passage. Turn to chapter 12. A little bit more on clean, unclean. Let's look at the first few verses of chapter 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be ceremonial, ceremonially unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. On the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Her time of blood purification shall be 33 days. She shall not touch any holy thing or come into the sanctuary until the days of her purification are completed. If she bears a female child, she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her menstruation. Her time of blood purification shall be 66 days. We'll pause there. This is just a... We talked a little bit about clean, unclean. It was asked... Did women go into the temple, the tent? And I said, no. One of the big reasons why women were not part of the priesthood or temple worship leadership and stuff like that is because women were just about unclean as often as they were clean. Um, and depending on a woman's phase of life, she may be unclean three times often as often as she is clean. Blood makes a person unclean. And so women just, they're touching blood every month. It's just part of it. And so through menstruation, if they are unclean for at least half a month, every month, it's about half the time. Well, you put on top of that, being pregnant in childbirth, in the course of a year, she's unclean more often than she's clean. It is what it is. And that is what we see in Leviticus. I am... The one other thing I want to say about this, I'm not going to get into, like, is that the right way to be? Of course it's not, so we're not going to do that. But I do want to say there is blood, and we will see this in a few minutes. Blood is life. But blood is life and death. And so the reason blood is considered unclean outside of a sacrificial experience is because it presumes a move closer to death. And so if a person is bleeding, they are essentially closer to death than they were when they were not bleeding, if that makes sense. Now, obviously, if you cut your hand, you're not somehow actually near death. But are you nearer 
then before you cut your hand? Kind of technically speaking, yes. Well, extrapolate that out to childbirth. And childbirth is as close as a human gets to death. Many women, far too many women, without the kind of care we're able to give now, died in childbirth. The babies died in childbirth. And so the idea that childbirth is somehow called out is not being misogynistic. It's actually recognizing that for a human, male or female, giving birth to a child is about the closest one can get to death. And so it is actually, in a sense, the most unclean a person can be. And it's less about the blood, although that absolutely is a factor, and more about being so near death. We don't, you know, it's nice to not think about that today because obviously um, dying during childbirth is blessedly uncommon nowadays. But anybody who's given birth to a child knows it is a high risk situation. There's a reason you've got a bunch of people around you measuring heartbeats and measuring all kinds of blood pressure and whatever, because at any moment, seconds can matter. And you probably likely know that now in most hospitals, they can do a cesarean and get a baby out of a mother in less than 60 seconds. Like when pressure drops or heartbeat stops, they can have that baby out in seconds because those seconds count. This is essentially at a time before modern medicine when they couldn't do things like that and death would just be very common. And so there is a period of ritualistic cleansing that happens around childbirth in order to bring someone back to a place where they can worship rightly, so to speak. All right, any thoughts or questions about that? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's jump in. Let's flip to chapter 16. Chapter 16 is really important in Jewish identity. Chapter 16 of Leviticus is where we get the establishment of the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur. We get Yom Kippur, which is, if you've ever known any Jew ever, Yom Kippur's the day. It's the big one, the most important day for a Jewish person in the, in the year period. It is essentially, theologically speaking, it is like Easter for us. We might say Christmas is also a big deal, but to be honest, I mean, Christmas is certainly important, but it is nothing like Easter, theologically speaking, um, even if perhaps it is culturally. So let's look at chapter 16. I'm going to read a little bit more than I typically do because I want to give you an idea of really the whole chapter before we discuss it. Um, remember that two of Aaron's sons died many chapters ago. Now we're getting in chapter 16 a bit of why and how to prevent that in the future. Okay. There's some stuff about goats too. Ready? Chapter 16. Here we go. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark, or he will die. For I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen tunic, 
and shall have the linen undergarments next to his body. Fasten the linen sash and wear the linen turban. These are the holy vestments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. He shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall take the two goats. Here's, listen to this. He shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots on the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Jump to verse 20. When he has finished atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat and sending it away into the wilderness by means of someone designated for the task. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a barren region, and the goat shall be set free in the wilderness. Now jump to verse 29. This shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves and shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. From all your sins you shall be clean before the Lord. It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall deny yourselves. It is a statute forever. And we'll stop there. Chapter 16 essentially figures out how to atone for everyone all at once, once a year. It is kind of like if you were to put Ash Wednesday and Good Friday together, not quite. But there is this sense on Ash Wednesday when we all come together and we are reminded that we are, we're really reminded of death. It's less about atonement. But regardless, Lent is that point in which we all kind of say, let's right our ships. Let's kind of get back on the right course. Whatever has happened during this year, we're going to try and get a bit closer to God. Good Friday is that moment where we see that in a sense, God atones on our behalf. So there is a shift theologically from us doing all of the atoning to God atoning completely for us. And theologically, where Christianity comes into this is through Christ we know we are essentially unable to actually perfectly atone. And so Jesus does so on our behalf. Now, I want to pause to say there is atonement theology around the sacrifice of Christ and all that sort of stuff that I'm not to do it today. If you really want to talk about that, we can talk about that some other time. But there is a bit of a problem with Jesus as the sacrificial lamb kind of bleeding for us. And, uh, it, but you can understand that Jesus, in a sense, becomes like the goat that is sacrificed in the temple on behalf of all the people. It's not a one-to-one.
but that's one of the ways in which early Christians began to understand what Jesus was doing once for all, was what this little goat is doing in the temple once a year at Yom Kippur. So, we get this moment here where God says, all right, once a year, you've got to really cleanse, really atone for all the bad stuff. So this is all the stuff, not the day-to-day things. This is like wash yourself clean in total. And the way we do this, you bring in two goats, one goat gets sacrificed to God, the other goat takes on all the sins and goes off into the wilderness. Now you may have noticed the reference to Azazel. What the heck? So Azazel, we don't know, is the answer. There are a few ideas about what Azazel could mean. The first is that Azazel could be the name of a demon. So there are references made in other parts of scripture. Well, that's not true. There are, well, hold on, I'm gonna back myself up. Azazel appears in other places. Azazel appears in First Enoch, which is, ready, here's your new word, a pseudepigraphal book. All right, so here's what we got. In the Bible, Here's our nerd moment. Roman Catholic and Orthodox churches have a Bible with more books than Protestant Bibles. Those extra books fall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Anglicans, like always, rest in the middle. And so what Martin Luther said as part of the Reformation is, this, all these books, they should not be part of the Bible at all. Anglican said, well, maybe they're not as authoritative as the Old Testament, but they're something and they're valuable. And so we kept them in a little section between the Old Testament and New Testament that we call the Apocrypha. So if you know the Apocrypha, that is essentially those Old Testament books that the Protestants say should not be in the Bible. The Catholics and the Orthodox say are definitely in the Bible. And the Anglicans say, eh. We'll keep them in, but separated. So first Enoch is one you've probably maybe never heard of. Those, there are lots and lots, dozens, if not hundreds of books that never made the canon at all. They're not in anyone's Bible, including the Apocrypha. Those scriptural books, still stories of Israel and history and theology and God's work in the world and all of their stuff, is under a big old umbrella called the pseudepigrapha. Pseudepigrapha is essentially all books that are kind of like biblical books, but they're not included in the Bible. In those books, we have other references to Azazel. Azazel could be a demon, yes. Azazel could be a location that the goat went to there is tradition in Jewish tradition after this Sinai period, wilderness period, where they would actually take this goat on Yom Kippur and throw it off a cliff. So you would have the goat sacrificed in the temple, then you'd have the second goat with all the sins, someone would walk it out to a cliff and throw it off the cliff. So that could be Azazel is the cliff where it's thrown off. Azazel could be mean just total destruction. And so in a sense, sin is our total corruption and destruction. And that is put on the goat and sent out in order to be destroyed in the wilderness. 
Fourth idea is that it could actually be a combination of the words that means goat and to go somewhere. It's not a perfect one-to-one, -one, but if you were to combine those two words together, it basically becomes Azazel. Anyway, we don't really know what Azazel means. I'm gonna go with it was a demon. And so essentially what you see in the, there was a book written called The Apocalypse of Abraham in the first century. So very concurrent to Revelation and it's apocalyptic and all of that, you know, drama. And in there, in that story, Azazel was actually substituted for Satan. And so I am very satisfied reading chapter 16 of Leviticus by saying, you essentially give one goat as a good sacrifice to Yahweh, and the other goat you put all your sins on and you give it to Satan. That kind of, for me, feels like that could have been a very easily understood idea. And in that moment, the entire community is very cleansed, ready for a new year. All right. Oh man, hands, boom, yes. Absolutely, yes. I'm sorry, I should have said that. Yes, the idea of a scapegoat, that's this. It is rested right here. Um, so <laughs> we're about to go to chapter 17 where we get the idea of lifeblood. Um, so scapegoating is exactly rooted right here in chapter 16. So when you essentially blame another for something you did, you are putting your sin, your wrong, onto them in the same way that Israel would have put their sin on this goat and sent it out. Any other thoughts or questions? Oh, I might finish everything today. Chapter 17. Now we're talking about sacrifice and blood and that sort of stuff. This will actually be quite quick. Let's look at chapter 17. I'm going to jump again, um, not read all the verses. Let's start at verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel slaughters an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or slaughters it outside the camp but does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to present it as an offering to the Lord before the tabernacle of the Lord, he shall be held guilty of bloodshed. He has shed blood, and he has been cut off from the people. Jump to verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the aliens who reside among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut that person off from the people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for making atonement for your lives on the altar. For as life, it is the blood that makes atonement. Okay, we'll pause there. This entire chapter might seem a little bit odd. It's a whole lot of blood. There are, other, there are lots more about blood that I did not read. What is really being said here is twofold. The first is blood is given back to God. Life is in the blood. And so when an animal is sacrificed to God, it is the blood that is given to God. Because in a sense, God's created spirit and life is in us, in our blood. That was the belief. You lose your blood, you die. So 
blood is essentially what holds our life together. And so if life is a gift, a created gift from God, then God's created spirit is really within the blood of the animal. And so that's why sacrifices are essentially bloodletting. You drain the animal of its blood and the carcass goes away. It can be burned on the altar for sure, but it's really not about the meat, the flesh, the bones. It's really about the blood. So there's that first point. The second is at this point at Sinai, there is a coalescing around how the people are to worship. No more can the people just go off and make an altar and sacrifice anywhere. And we saw that happening. Abraham did it. We see it in Job. We see it in multiple other places around the Old Testament that kind of prefigures this moment where people just set up an altar, made a sacrifice to God. Hey, that was great at the time, but now what God is saying is we are organizing ourselves and our worship life together. No more here or there. Where I am in the temple, well, the tent at this point, and then later in the temple, that is where you sacrifice, period. You don't just do it wherever you are. If you are attempting to sacrifice wherever you are, you are essentially doing something savage. You are not doing something sacred. Which is why, I forget it was a week or two ago, we had the question, when did the Jews stop sacrificing animals? The real answer was, when Rome destroyed the temple in 70. There was nowhere to do it anymore. And it's anchored here in this idea, you can't just go sacrifice animals wherever you are. God, God's presence in the tent and then in the temple is where sacrifices are made. If you're not there with God, the sacrifice has no use. And even worse, you are essentially sinning by, by trying to sacrifice wherever you are. So this means that we should also have a foothold in corporate worship? Say again, please. This needs to be the foothold for corporate worship? Yes, thank you. So corporate worship begins to be the point here. So all along the way, in many different facets, the undercurrent of Leviticus is you are now doing this together. You are different than the other people, and you are defining yourselves in a very specific way. You behave together, you live together, you worship together, you do everything together with a specificity that is different than everyone else. It creates a super strong identity of what it means to be Jewish. I should also say that, mm, no, nah, that's good. Any other thoughts or questions? I knew that would be quick. Super different from Christianity, though, how like celebrating um, the Eucharist, you could do it anywhere. Yep. Yes, this is very different than what we see in Christianity, which is one of the reasons why I forget when I mentioned this. It was a couple months ago. Um, so I'm going to the Holy Land in a couple weeks with a group again. And one of the things that always comes up is when we go to Jerusalem, there is a, a constant kind of hum of tension between who controls what space. And it's almost always between Jews and Muslims. And one of the questions that typically comes up at some point is, where are the Christians? Why, 
why are they not part of essentially the tension? Now, do not hear me. There are Christians who are part of the tension. It's just not quite the same level. And the quick answer is most Christians like their space, but it's not worth dying over. And that is different because for Jews and Muslims, the actual place really matters a lot. And so when there is argument over ownership of the Temple Mount, right? So if you go to the Holy Land, you'll see lots and lots of Jews, Orthodox conservatives, that are praying at the Western Wall. What is the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall? It is a retention wall that was built to hold up the Temple Mount on which the Temple was built. It was not part of the Temple, but at this point in time, because the Temple Mount is controlled by the Muslims, the closest a Jew can get is to the retaining wall at the base of that mount, mound, hill, whatever you want to call it. For the Jews, not being able to go to the place of the temple, that holy of holies, is a real tragedy. And so they go as close as they physically can be, which is that wall. And the reason it's called the Wailing Wall is because historically Jews will go and weep over not being able to actually go to the place where the temple was. Now, where the temple was was the Holy of Holies, and it was built on a particular rock that is believed to be sacred. Jews and Muslims in particular believe that it was the creation stone. So essentially, the world began from that point. It was created from that rock. Then it was the rock upon which Abraham prepared to sacrifice Isaac. Then it was the rock on which Muhammad stood when he went on his night journey. And so for Jews and Muslims, it's very, very sacred. When you look at any picture of Israel, you typically see the gold dome, right? That's the dome of the rock. It's a shrine. It is not a mosque. The mosque is across the courtyard, Al-Aqsa. The shrine is simply built over that stone. For Jews, that represents the Holy of Holies, the desire to have a third temple at some point built back on the Temple Mount. But for the Muslims, it is an equally sacred shrine. Well, that's not entirely true. Jerusalem is probably third most important city in Islam, still very important. And that shrine is still very important, and they control it now. And much of the conflict that happens there is really between Jews and Muslims. And Christians are kind of, eh. I mean, yeah, it's nice, it's fine. Um, but if we were to say, you cannot worship in your church anymore or else I will kill you, Christians would be like, okay, bye. Um, that's really okay. Like, not worth it. It's different in other traditions where place really matters. And we see right here in Leviticus that the tent, what did I just read to you in chapter 16, where it says, sorry, is that the right place? Or does it go all the way back? Oh yeah, in chapter 16 you see verse 2b, it says, Tell Aaron not to come just at any time into the sanctuary inside the curtain before the mercy seat that is upon the ark where he will die, for I appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. It was very, very critical for the Jews. God was physically present 
right there on the ark. Remember the mercy seat on top of the ark, the box? Put in that holy of holies. God was there. God was not in your heart. And God was not in the pretty sky or in the daisies of the field or any of that stuff. God was there in the tent. And so that's where you worship. That's what became the center. And then that was then relocated to the temple when Solomon built it. And so God's physical presence matters in a way that for Christians, I mean, I guess if there are some holy places like the tomb where we think Jesus was buried, uh, who knows, um, but I wait in line and I go in it every time I go to Jerusalem, so why not? Because it's, you know, it's, who, uh, it, was it really there? I don't know, but it sure is, feels good. So that kind of thing is special. If we were to somehow discover, God, I don't know. I don't even want to say that because I'm going to get in trouble. But there are certain things that maybe would matter to Christians like that, but at present, not really. And so place is just not as important to us as it is to the other traditions. Any other thoughts? All right, then we've still got 10 minutes to talk about sex. So this is fourth section of today's lesson, chapter 18, sexual relations. Let's start at the beginning. And I will definitely not read all of this chapter. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not follow their statutes. My ordinances you shall observe, and my statutes you shall keep following them. I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my ordinances. By doing so, one shall live. I am the Lord. Verse 6. None of you shall approach anyone near of kin to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father, which is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's wife. It is the nakedness of your father. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your sister, your father's daughter, or your mother's daughter, whether born at home or born abroad. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your son's daughter or of your daughter's daughter, for their nakedness is your own nakedness. And on and on and on. It's a lot of nakedness. I will tell you, one of my favorite things about being in Texas is when we get a great reader in church that says naked. Oh, there is hardly anything more delightful than listening to someone say naked in church. I love it. Um, so this nakedness, um, pronounced the right way, you get the idea here. So unless you missed it, revealing someone's nakedness is code for having sex with them. So essentially what is happening throughout this chapter is a whole list of all the people you're not supposed to have sex with. And it sort of makes sense. Not your mother, not your father, not your siblings, regardless of where they were born, not your children, not your nieces and nephews, and we all said amen, right? No, we're not supposed to do any of those things. And this just lists more and more and more and more. And you can read this entire chapter and you're thinking, who can I have sex with, right? So essentially what Israel is doing here is establishing boundaries and limits around sexual relations that we now would simply say yes 
that makes total sense. Well, the reason it makes sense, y'all, is because it started here. We inherit the kind of sexual limits, boundaries, laws, whatever you want to say, out of the Jewish tradition. The early Christians adopted much of the Jewish sexual boundaries around relationships. What I really want to say is that we can get into the details for sure, really not necessary, because essentially what is happening here around sexual relationships is twofold. It is centering sexual relationships on marriage and on procreation. What is happening here for the Jewish people is that sex is being redefined away from just pleasure and enjoyment, but something that is functional. And it actually kind of goes backwards from what I just said. The point of sex is to have children, to procreate, and to procreate within the boundaries of marriage. That is really what Leviticus 18 is all about, saying that sex is not for our pleasure or enjoyment to be cheap or given away or used as power grab, but instead is to actually have children and then to do so within marriage. This is very countercultural at the time. When we see at the beginning of chapter 8, do not do as they did in Egypt, and do not do as they do in Canaan. It's not as if Egypt and Canaan were somehow super perverse. It's because they lived in Egypt, they will live in Canaan, they need to be different than the people in both places. They need to separate themselves very clearly from those cultures. And in those cultures at the time, not just Egypt and Canaan, but all over the place, sex was just kind of whenever, wherever, with whomever, and oftentimes it was not consensual. It was often about power. And so one, we should read between the lines here about any kind of abuse through sex, whether that is rape, physical abuse, you name it, sexual aggression, was a way at the time, and still is, a way for a person to exert power over another person. And what God is really saying here is that sex should never be used for power. We see this problematically all the way through Scripture. The one that popped to mind and in the commentary is the conflict, we'll read about it next year, between David and his son Absalom. So when David, when Absalom tries to take the throne away from David, David leaves and runs away. And he leaves 10 of his concubines at the palace to take care of the palace in his absence. Well, Absalom comes in, kind of takes over the palace and says to his advisors, well, now what should I do? And they immediately say, go sleep with all of your dad's concubines because that then asserts your authority and you claim the kingship if you essentially own his women. And so a tent is built and he does so in front of the public in order to establish himself as the power and the authority. That is exactly the kind of use of sex that Leviticus is saying is absolutely wrong. It doesn't mean everyone's gonna follow those rules, but they set up very clearly here boundaries 
that not only divide Judaism, but, divide, but define, I mean Judaism, but also defines Christianity and Islam. They're, this kind of Abrahamic understanding of things ripples out in many different ways. We certainly know that today, the limits and boundaries around sex can be problematic in many ways. What I want to kind of leave you with is sex is not simple like this. And humans desire sexual relationships. And by simply saying no, it does not afford the kind of complexity around education and formation that should happen. I tell you, I see this all the time. As a former youth minister, I have always advocated for sexual education in many different levels for all of our children. Start, I advocate you start as early as second and third grade with just simple anatomy. And then every couple years you develop a more and more complex understanding of sexuality such that sex is not dirty and illicit. Anything that you tell someone not to do, I mean, hello, any child, you don't touch that, what are they gonna do? They're gonna go touch that. And so whenever you say don't do a thing, people are going to think that that thing is the best thing to do. And so rather than simply prohibit, what I think churches should be doing is educating and being forthright and being helpful so that things are not illicit, but they actually, no pun intended, become less sexy because you simply name it and it is normal and you create a normative boundary around value and dignity and honor and all of those other things. I was just with the parents class um, for a couple Sundays a few weeks ago here at St. Michael, and my whole thing was, how do you talk to your kids about sex? Many of those parents have toddlers or early elementary school students, so they're not quite there yet. But one of the things I said to them was, you don't just talk to them once, you start a conversation once, and you continue that conversation for years and years and years and years. And the sadness that fell over their faces was apparent because they're like, oh man, I thought I just had to do it once. No, you don't have to do it once, you do it all the time. You bring it up all the time, you talk about it all the time because you have to take away the veil of uncertainty and make it something that is normal. And when it becomes normal, then you can make it healthy. And if it's never normal, it's always gonna be unhealthy. And part of what we see here in chapter 18 is simply boundaries, rules. There's not a lot of emphasis on how you then make things healthy. And so unfortunately for us, we've inherited a tradition in which sex is kind of dirty. And so being sexual is seen as something bad. And so then as that scene is bad, people don't know how to be healthy with it. And that's more or less all I had to say today. Um, yes, Steve, last word. Yes, sexuality like this, who you have sex with, who you don't have sex with. If procreation is the goal or the effect, then we certainly know siblings cannot have, I mean, we know any male can impregnate any female, but if they are too genetically similar, you will have lots and lots of problems. And so of course, 
Could this be based on the knowledge that two related means unhealthy babies? Sure. But I don't think that's the only limit around this. I do think that there is a real anchoring of familial identity here. And I would argue a, an implicit, maybe even explicit, attempt at honoring the relationships beyond just the sex. That relationships really matter in a very real way, that marriages have integrity within the Jewish tradition in a way that they did not in other cultures at the time. And that intentionality and integrity has been a very positive impact. But what was lost is this sense that sex is for us and for our enjoyment and for our intimacy all within healthy boundaries. And to define what those healthy boundaries really are helps it to be less illicit and dirty and instead becomes something to be celebrated but not given away and not cheap. And so, yes, I think you could say the same thing about circumcision. You can point to lots of health benefits for that as well. You can see that in Africa today with AIDS transmissions and whatnot. So I think many of these things are likely anchored in some kind of knowledge, even if it was implicit knowledge, around creating the healthiest people possible. But I don't want to make it only clinical because I do think Judaism really is the first formal religious group that makes marriage so very central and to be honored. There are negative consequences to that, but the positive benefits are significant and will continue next week. Hey, it's Ash Wednesday next week, so make a plan to be at church. I'll see you all soon. Be safe out there.